Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Peter Moss of The Intercept, who assesses the $787 million settlement of the Dominion Fox News defamation lawsuit and the network's firing of Tucker Carlson, the white nationalist host of Fox's highest-rated cable news show. Bridget Sarianos of the group Trustees for Alaska, who talks about President Biden's controversial decision approving Alaska's Willow Fossil Fuel Project and the ongoing campaign to stop it. And Brett Edkins of the group Stand Up America, who examines Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas's ethics violations and proposed legislation that would require the high court's justices to adhere to a code of conduct. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. On April 15th, Sudan descended into violence as rival armies waged war in the streets of the capital city of Khartoum. In what observers say is the culmination of a years-long power struggle between two generals, Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, the leader of the Sudanese armed forces, and Mohamed Hamdan Dagalo, commander of the paramilitary Rapid Support Forces. Both played key roles in the counterinsurgency war against Darfur rebels that began in 2003, described as the first genocide of the 21st century, where ethnic cleansing and mass rape were used as weapons of war. The two worked together to oust Sudan's longtime dictator, Omar al-Bashir, amid pro-democracy protests in 2019. Sudanese Armed Forces General Burhan then led a military coup in 2021, dissolving the ruling council in which the army and civilians had shared power, throwing the country's transition to democratic rule into turmoil. The Russian mercenary Wagner Group has been supplying General Dagolo's rapid support forces with missiles to aid their fight against the country's army under Burhan. In 2014, Sudan's military granted Russia access to the East African nation's gold mines in exchange for military and political support. There are growing fears among global leaders that a full-scale civil war in Sudan could lead to a new refugee crisis. Already, more than 20,000 people from Darfur in western Sudan have fled into Chad. After a historic 22% spike in 2021, the average annual bonus for Wall Street securities industry employees fell 26% in 2022. But the rate of increase in average Wall Street bonuses since the 2008 economic crash is still far higher than wage increases for ordinary workers, according to the Institute for Policy Studies Analysis of Bureau of Labor Statistics data. Since 1985, the average Wall Street bonus has increased 1,165%, from almost $14,000 to over $176,000 in 2022, not adjusted for inflation. If the minimum wage had increased at that rate, today it would be worth $42.37 an hour instead of $7.25. 
the rapid increase in Wall Street bonuses over the past several decades has contributed to gender and racial inequality, since workers at the low end of the wage scale are disproportionately people of color and women, while the lucrative financial industry is overwhelmingly white and male. Wall Street bonus culture encouraged the high-risk behaviors that led to the 2008 financial crisis, costing millions of Americans their homes and livelihoods. For more than a dozen years now, Wall Street and corporate lobbyists have blocked both financial executive pay restrictions and a federal minimum wage increase. This speaks volumes about who has influence in Washington and who doesn't. The Biden administration's promised clean energy transition is taking hold in rural Georgia. The energy startup, Plug Power, is providing warehouses operated by Walmart and Amazon with forklifts that run on hydrogen power. Plug Power, a leading developer of liquid hydrogen, credits Biden's clean energy provisions in the Inflation Reduction Act with a transformational impact on the move toward green technologies. However, in the view of many climate activists, Biden has surrendered to the fossil fuel industry with his recent approval of the Willow oil development project in Alaska's fragile ecosystem. Biden's compromises with big oil were also seen in his endorsement of dubious carbon capture technology and the development of hydrogen power made from fossil fuels. Still, according to The Economist magazine, the Inflation Reduction Act's funding and tax credits could leverage $1.6 trillion in private decarbonization investment in coming years. The U.S. is now at a clean energy inflection point since green renewable energy sources overtook power generated by coal for the first time in 2022. Power from wind and solar are likely to increase significantly in coming years. A report by the group Climate Power says 100,000 new clean energy jobs have been created since the Inflation Reduction Act was signed into law. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. After months of court proceedings in Dominion Voting System's defamation lawsuit against Fox News, the trial that was about to begin on April 18th was stopped when Fox agreed to pay $787.5 million in a negotiated settlement of the case. One of the largest settlements ever in a U.S. defamation lawsuit was centered on allegations that the right-wing network promoted false charges that Dominion was complicit in stealing the 2020 presidential election from Donald Trump. In paying out nearly $800 million, Fox avoided further embarrassing revelations that were likely in a trial. Dominion will be proceeding with additional lawsuits against Trump lawyers Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell, Trump allies Patrick Byrne and MyPillow's Mike Lindell, as well as Newsmax and OAN. Fox and many of the other Dominion targets continue to face a parallel $2.7 billion defamation lawsuit filed by the Smartmatic Voting Technology Company 
charging that Fox lies decimated its business. Many critics of Fox News were disappointed that the trial was halted and that the Murdoch-owned company wasn't forced to publicly admit that the news network and its hosts consciously lied to their audience, lies that were in large part responsible for feeding the anger of the Trump supporters who launched the violent January 6th Capitol insurrection. Your reporter spoke with Peter Mass, a senior editor with The Intercept, who assesses the outcome of the Dominion Fox News defamation lawsuit and the network's sudden firing of racist conspiracy theorist Tucker Carlson, host of Fox's highest-rated cable news show. When somebody wants to sue a company for defamation, whether it's an individual or a company, you have to not just show that they were wrong. Journalists are wrong all the time. You have to show that they knew they were wrong and that they acted recklessly or with malice. And Dominion had an incredibly strong case because in discovery, that is, once they filed their suit, they were able to kind of rummage through Fox News internal communications. They found all kinds of incriminating emails and text messages between Fox hosts and guests and bookers where they're talking about these kind of fantastic lies that the guests were putting on the air. And, you know, this is hosts like Tucker Carlson and, and, and Maria Bartiromo and, and others where they're talking about, you know, these things are pretty incredible. They're unsourced, but, you know, what the heck, let it fly. So this was incredibly damaging information that came out during the course of discovery. And it was because of that that basically Fox, on the day the trial began, the jury was selected, the jury was seated, all the journalists were in Delaware waiting for the opening arguments. And minutes, basically, before opening arguments were supposed to begin, the two sides, Dominion and Fox News, reached this settlement in which, you know, the monetary amount of $787.5 million was paid. And, you know, this was a major victory of sorts for, for people who wanted Fox to literally pay for their lives. And the whole process of discovering where these, these documents and emails came out was incredibly embarrassing for Fox News. But one thing that was lacking, and this is a, a major lack, absence in, in this kind of the settlement and the, the denouement of this whole thing, is that Fox did not have to apologize, particularly to its viewers, for what it did. It did not have to state on its own air to its own viewers that, hey, we were telling you lies. We knew we were telling you lies. Sorry about that. That was not a component of the settlement. And that's kind of the major disappointment. I mean, $787.5 million is a lot of money to you and me. But to Fox, it's not really the backbreaking amount of money you think. They have $4 billion in cash on hand. It's an incredibly profitable network. They can write off some of this money in taxes and tax write-offs. They can also get some insurance coverage of it. So Fox escaped to lie another day. Peter, do you think this settlement in this lawsuit will change the way Fox News covers the news? Over recent decades, they've essentially served as the propaganda arm of the Republican Party. Will the money they have to pay out to Dominion change in any way what viewers see on Fox News in the future, you think? I think in the short term, maybe Fox isn't going to go quite as crazy as it has gone. But I, I don't think in the medium or long term it's really going to have any effect. I mean, the, the one effect it'll have is they'll be a lot more careful when they're putting lies out into the political bloodstream to not mention companies individually and to not mention non-public figures because that's where they get into trouble with defamation. So they'll be they'll be better about it. They'll be smarter about it. You know, Tucker Carlson has been one of the most terrible individuals as far as, you know, spreading racist ideas and propaganda in, in, into America. But 
the Murdochs are interested in making money through, you know, right-wing politics. And whatever those politics are, however extreme they become, so long as it makes money for the Murdochs, they're very happy to go as far as is necessary. So, you know, people were very glad, whatever it was, nearly a decade ago, around a decade ago, when Glenn Beck was finally eased out of the Fox News universe. And, you know, then what happens? Well, you know, we get Tucker Carlson. So there will be another iteration of Tucker Carlson, whose name will not be Tucker Carlson, but who could be even worse than Tucker Carlson, because uh, the Murdochs are, are interested in, 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 in making money off of off of right-wing propaganda. And what actually that right-wing propaganda consists of, I don't think they care very much, no matter how much damage it does. Well, Peter, I did want to turn our attention to the announcement that Tucker Carlson was fired. I'm not sure we know exactly the, the details about why he was fired. In your view, was it related to the outcome of this Dominion lawsuit and the settlement? There is a young woman who sued uh, Tucker Carlson and Fox News who was fired from her job and alleges uh, sexual harassment and some other wrongdoings on the part of Fox. But what's your overall reaction to the firing of Tucker Carlson? That was a surprise to him, apparently, and, and to many in his audience. You know, my sense is that one of the possibilities, and there are obviously going to be multiple factors, but one is the lawsuit that you mentioned by this producer, um, Abby Grossberg, which kind of is another discovery time bomb that Fox News has to deal with. It's got this lawsuit. There's going to be discovery. And now the issue is not going to be lies about the election. It's going to be about sexism and sexual harassment at Fox News, which has a long sordid history of that. And I suspect that the Murdochs realized they made a big mistake by letting the defamation suit get as far as it did. And they decided we can't go through this again. We have to cut this other lawsuit off in the past. And the way they do that is by getting rid of Tucker Carlson because the lawsuit was against him and the people who worked with him. And probably we'll, we'll read in the next few weeks or month or two a, a settlement to this producer to make the problem go away. That was Peter Mass, a senior editor with The Intercept and author. Find a link to his recent article titled Dominion Was Never Going to Save Our Democracy from Fox News by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. ConocoPhillips' Willow Oil Drilling Project on the North Slope of Alaska is perhaps the largest fossil fuel venture on U.S. federal lands. If and when it becomes operational, it will produce 180,000 barrels of oil a day, or 629 million barrels of oil, over the course of its 30-year lifespan. The Trump administration approved the project in October 2020. But in August 2021, a federal judge rejected it, ruling on a lawsuit filed by the group Trustees for Alaska due to the project's harmful impacts on the climate, nearby communities, and area wildlife. The Biden administration conducted another environmental review of Willow in 2022, and on March 13th this year, approved a somewhat scaled-back version of the project. Biden's controversial decision on Willow broke his 2020 campaign pledge to permit no new drilling on federal land. On April 3rd, a federal court judge ruled against environmental groups seeking to block preliminary construction on the Willow drilling project. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Bridget Sarianos, senior attorney with Trustees for Alaska, who talks about the impacts of the oil drilling project and the second lawsuit the trustees have filed to try to stop it. The 
real problem with Willow is that, you know, I mean, I think the proposal is coming at a time where the science and our president himself have acknowledged that we need to do everything we can to reduce fossil fuel use and intake. And besides that, too, it is also proposed to be built very close to Teshikpuk Lake and the Teshikpuk Lake Special Area. Special areas are unique to the National Petroleum Reserve in Alaska, which is the formal name for this Western Arctic area that we've been trying to protect for a long time. And Teshikpuk Lake is, I believe it's the largest lake in the Arctic in the world. And it's an incredibly important place for migratory birds, as well as a caribou herd that actually is non-migratory and stays in the area year round. And all of these animals, in turn, are very important to the local community, the community of Nuiqsut, um, whose mayor, Rosemary Atungaruk, has been very outspoken against the project. One of the things that is really concerning to us, you know, as folks who live here and work here and raise families here is Alaska is already on the front end of climate change. We're seeing our glaciers recede. Um, we're seeing warmer winters. We're seeing more wildfires in the summer. And that's just in Anchorage in Arctic Alaska. The situation is even more dire. And so the approval of this project is not just about Willow itself. Biden administration did approve a smaller version of the project than Conoco originally proposed, and they were definitely sort of touting that and all of their press statements about their approvals to sort of downplay the impacts of Willow by saying, well, we approved a smaller version, but we've been following this project for a number of years. We sued and won on a prior approval of the project, and everything that has been shown to date, both the government's own statements and Conoco's statements, are that Willow is a gateway to the Western Arctic, and that it's going to catalyze and enable future oil and gas development even further west. And so that's one of the, I think, scariest things about this project is not just what was just approved four weeks ago in and of itself. It's the fact that Conoco is building an entirely new central processing facility and a spider web of roads and pads of pipelines that is designed to allow for even further oil and gas development moving further west into previously undeveloped areas that are really important for maintaining this balance of animals and people and healthy waterways and lands. One concern is that this activity will contribute to melting the permafrost, which has locked away methane for thousands of years, and methane heats the planet 100 times faster than CO2 over a 10-year period. So when it melts, how can mushy land support the infrastructure that's being built to do this project? ConocoPhillips is actually going to use what are called thermosiphons. It's basically refrigeration where they will be using these devices to refreeze the permafrost that's directly under their gravel roads and gravel pads for the project because their own activities are melting the permafrost so fast that if they don't do that, as you noted, by the end of the 30-year project life, it would probably, yeah, sink into the ground. Bridget Pisariano, please explain the basis for the lawsuit that you filed. Our lawsuit is challenging, you know, the underlying decisions and the analysis that went in. There's a law called the National Environmental Policy Act, shorthanded as NEPA, that requires the government to assess the impacts of its actions, which include permitting approvals. So the Willow permit being a prime example of a federal action. 
they have to analyze the impacts of those actions on the human environment. Everything from the environment itself, animals, water, air, lands, um, and also the people who will be impacted. You know, once again, just fast-tracked approving this project by putting Conoco's bottom line ahead of their obligations under the law. And, you know, in particular, we've been arguing that they failed to look at alternatives to what Conoco proposed that would actually reduce environmental impacts, protect the surface resources of the Western Arctic, and failed to look at ways to minimize impacts to subsistence uses by Alaska Natives. We're also arguing that they failed to look closely at impacts to polar bears who are listed under the Endangered Species Act and whose critical habitat is actually in the Willow Project area. That was Bridget Sarianos, senior attorney with the group Trustees for Alaska. Learn more about the ongoing fight to stop Alaska's Willow oil drilling project by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Almost every city, state, and federal government agency, including federal judges, have a code of ethics by which these civil servants and employees must abide. But the nine justices on the Supreme Court are the only federal judges not bound by a code of conduct, but they are required to disclose gifts they receive worth more than $480. ProPublica recently reported that Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas failed to disclose some 20 years of gifts worth hundreds of thousands of dollars that he received from his friend billionaire Harlan Crow, a GOP megadonor. Crow paid for luxurious vacations, private jet trips, yacht cruises, and purchased property owned by Thomas, where his elderly mother still lives. Although Thomas had previously disclosed similar gifts, he stopped all reporting after the Los Angeles Times published a story in 2004 divulging that he had taken more gifts than any other justice on the high court. That same year, Thomas failed to recuse himself from an appeals case, even though the company being sued was part of Crow's real estate empire. Thomas had previously been criticized for declining to recuse himself from cases involving the 2020 presidential election where his wife Ginny was deeply involved in promoting Trump's big lie and supporting his plot to overturn the 2020 election. Your reporter spoke with Brett Edkins, Managing Director of Policy and Political Affairs with the group Stand Up America, who examines Thomas's ethics violations and proposed congressional legislation that would require all Supreme Court justices to adhere to a code of ethical conduct. The Supreme Court has a serious ethics problem. That's what we know. And the latest revelations about Justice Thomas should alarm every American. For over 20 years, Justice Thomas has been accepting and failing to disclose luxury vacations that he was gifted almost every year by GOP megadonor Harlan Crow, including multiple trips on his private jet, his private yacht, all these worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. And let's just talk about a few of them. These gifts included trips to Crow's ranch in East Texas, trips with Crow to an all-male retreat just north of San Francisco, trips nearly every summer for 20 years 
to Crow's private resort in the Adirondacks, yacht trips to New Zealand and the Greek islands. One other colorful example, Thomas and his wife were given an all-expense-paid trip to Indonesia. They flew a private jet there. They spent nine days island-hopping around a volcanic archipelago on a 162-foot superyacht, which has a private chef and butlers and attendants. This trip was worth over $500,000. This is Downton Abbey, but in Southeast Asia. Crow has also given Thomas physical gifts, a $19,000 Frederick Douglass Bible, a $15,000 bust of Abraham Lincoln. And he's given Ginny Thomas, her Tea Party group, a half a million dollars. Uh, and that Tea Party group then paid her a salary of $120,000. The bottom line is Crow has been subsidizing Thomas's lifestyle with consistent, luxurious gifts to an extent that's almost unimaginable and, and that would be alarming for any judge let alone a Supreme Court justice. Brett, I just read recently that Senate Judiciary Chair, Democrat Dick Durbin of Illinois, invited Chief Justice John Roberts to testify about these ethics issues, as well as the circumstances surrounding the gifts received by Justice Thomas. Are the Democrats and uh, the Judiciary Chair, uh, Dick Durbin, doing the right thing here? Or should they demand that uh, Justice Thomas himself appear rather than Chief Justice John Roberts, who I understand hasn't even replied to that invitation. Congress should investigate Thomas. The Senate Judiciary Committee should demand that he testify publicly. Uh, Congress is a co-equal branch of government. They have a constitutional duty to hold this court in check. They can't simply duck that duty. It would be a dereliction of that duty for Congress not to do a full investigation of Thomas's wrongdoing and demand that he testify. Congress also has a responsibility to take legislative action to pass a code of conduct for this court. There is several bills out there over the last few years, but the leading bill out there is the Supreme Court Ethics Recusal and Transparency Act, ESSERT, which is a bill from Hank Johnson and Sheldon Whitehouse, which would require the Supreme Court to adopt and abide by a code of conduct. It also has incredibly important reforms for SCOTUS ethics, for Supreme Court ethics. It would establish disclosure rules for gifts, travel, and income, it would establish an investigative board to review complaints against Supreme Court justices, and it would require justices like Justice Thomas to recuse themselves from cases where they have a conflict of interest, including if a party before them gave them or their spouse income or lobbied in support of their nomination to the court. And we would also have new transparency requirements. So if we knew that if parties before the court gave money to support a nomination of a court or gifts to a justice, that would be disclosed publicly. These reforms have to be passed by this Congress. The Senate Judiciary Committee should not just investigate Thomas, a full investigation. They should also hold hearings to consider, mark up, and pass the Supreme Court Ethics Recusal and Transparency Act. That was Brett Edkins, Managing Director of Policy and Political Affairs with the group Stand Up America. Learn more about Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas's ethics problems and propose legislation to require the High Court's justices to adhere to a code of conduct by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, 
a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WZBC in Newton, Massachusetts, WEFT in Champaign, Illinois, KBCS in Bellevue, Washington, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.